0: We work with busy professionals on a one-to-one basis for 6 or 12 months using the latest science and technology. And Body Shop also works with businesses who want to create a culture of energy, vitality and performance and position well-being as a competitive advantage. Find out more at bodyshopperformance.com and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Move the Guesswork podcast. I'm Leanne Spencer. My guest this week is somebody I met about four years ago, a fascinating chap called Dr. Robert Lefevre. Dr. Robert Lefevre, he is an expert in addiction. He's an addiction specialist. He's got a history of addiction himself going back all the way to the 12th of October, 1984, which was when he gave up alcohol, but also lots and lots of other things. So he's a real pioneer of modern addiction treatment. And you'll find out more about that as you listen to this two-part episode. He created the first rehabilitation centre in the world to treat all addictions. In the UK, he was also the first to treat patients with eating disorders, alongside those with drug and alcohol problems, to treat compulsive gambling, internet addiction and workaholism, to identify and treat compulsive helping, which we'll talk more about in, in part one, which is a really interesting idea. Over the last 26 years, he's worked with over 5,000 inpatients suffering from various forms of addictive and compulsive behaviour, as well as stress and depression. He identified the Lefevre clusters of addicted behaviours, which are hedonistic, nurturing of self and relationships. And he now offers a range of interventions, including an intensive two-week intervention in complete confidentiality, as opposed to group programmes that were offered elsewhere. So he is really an expert in this field. He's published many, many books and I actually met him four years ago and he gave me a signed copy of one of the first editions of his book that's no longer published. So He's a really interesting character and I hope you enjoy this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. We split it into two parts so if you're listening to this you've got part one and if you're listening to this live you'll need to wait seven days before we publish part two. So that's it from me. I'll link to everything we talk about in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Robert, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you.
0: Yeah. I will have given an introduction, but it'd be great. Just set the scene. What's your background, your medical training? Mm-hmm. Take us very briefly up to where you're at now, and then we'll go from there.
1: I was a classically trained medical student. I did three years at Cambridge and three years at the Middlesex Hospital in London. Mm-hmm. I was taught not one single lesson in six years on addiction. Right. I was taught about overdoses. I was taught about heart attacks and strokes and things like that and mm-hmm. consequences but nobody taught me at all what addiction really is and what you can do about it. Mm. I was telling just to say, well, stop doing it. Right. Well, I said stop doing it many times. It didn't work. So something had to change. And what changed was when I realized that I had an addiction problem myself. Anybody else could have told me that, but we don't see it very well, and I certainly didn't see myself mm. until I was absolutely on the deck, and then I had to change. And a friend suggested that I, you know, might like to try um, Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, well, really? I thought that was for no hopers lying Hmm. in the street. And he said, well, come and see. So Hmm. I did. And I saw. And here I am.
0: Interesting. So you've been abstinent for how many years? 35. 35.
1: Well, congratulations. all I've been is abstinent. You know, people talk about recovery. That's not for me to judge. Other people can judge the quality of my life and my relationships, but I can say that it's thirty-five years since twelfth of October nineteen eighty-four, since I had any alcohol or recreational drugs or mood-altering prescription drugs. That's, you know, antidepressants, tranquilizers, sleeping tablets, sugar, white flour, nicotine, caffeine.
0: Mm. I,
1: I don't do any of that. Mm. I don't need it. I've got a wonderful life without it. Mm. I thought I might be giving up something. And what I found was I gave up a lot of hassle, a lot of grief. Oh. And what I've got in place is the life of my dreams.
0: You touched very briefly on something I, w- I do want to follow up on, which is the difference between abstinence and recovery. Yep. And as I understand, it, there's a chasm of difference between the two things. But before that, how did, there's a lot of things that you mentioned that you, you were abstinent from there. Mm-hmm. Was alcohol the first and most important? No. Where did the others follow from? My,
1: my eating disorder was my first. Right. At the age of seven, I fell off a punt sucking a lollipop. It didn't matter if I drowned, but I absolutely was not going to lose the lollipop. <laughs> so my sugar addiction could have been diagnosed then, mm-hmm. or at 17, 27, 37, but it wasn't diagnosed until I was 47. Mm. My weight used to vary by 50 pounds. I was always on a diet of one kind <laughs> or another, and then I'd change, and then I'd go exercising and doing all sorts of things. The common cross addictions of people with eating disorders... shopping, spending, work, and exercise. Uh I used to shop for England, and I spent money that I hadn't got. I built up enormous overdrafts. Uh I worked on things that I didn't even want to do. Uh, With exercise, I'm actually anorectic. I have to be forced to exercise. I take exercise 15 minutes every single morning, and I do a bit of balance exercise and some yoga. That takes about 15 to 20 minutes altogether. And I keep time by saying, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. But I have to do it in order to keep my old bones sticking over. Mm. But all the other things, I don't take on work that I don't want to do nowadays. I just do what I enjoy. Mm. I shop for what I need. I do my own shopping. And I buy things that are are useful for me. And that's it. Mm. So that side is okay. I don't gamble nowadays. I don't even do the lottery. I once lost three months' income on the turn of one card in the poker game. Wow. And my wife wasn't very happy about that, as mm. you might imagine. Mm. So I don't gamble at all. I, I don't even start. It's not worth it because the first spin of the dice or roll of the, the, the wheel or whatever triggers the next and the next and the next. Mm. So, you know, the definition of addiction that I would use is the inability to predict what's going to happen after the first use. Yes. See, sometimes I might just be able to put it down. At other times, woof, I've gone off into a binge. And I can't predict that. Mm. I remember Dick Heilman at Hazelden, which is the first Minnesota method treatment center in America, in Center City in Minnesota. He said to me, the reason we relapse is that some cars turn left. I said, huh? He said, well, you're driving along on a sunny day and nothing in your mind. And the car suddenly turns left. And then it stops outside the, the bar. And then you're in there and drinking a six-pack, or mm-hmm. because the car turned left. Now, that's a very important understanding, because it shows that these crazy ideas come out of the blue. Mm. It's not premeditated, it's not because of some dreadful trauma, it just happens. And therefore, we need to be, you know, to use a preventive. If I can't predict what's going to happen, like taking a flu shot, I don't take it because I've got the flu, I tell you, because I want to prevent getting it. Mm. And therefore, I go to Alcoholics Anonymous and Nicotine Anonymous or Overeaters Anonymous or Gamblers Anonymous or whatever anonymous in order to prevent a relapse. So that brings me abstinence. I am abstinent, that I can say. But in recovery, I want three different things. I Before, want you,
0: before you go, actually, can yeah. I interrupt? What you've just said there about the turning left kind of implies that fate may strike. Yes. And absolves us of any sort of involvement in that decision-making
1: process, mm. which I'm not sure is exactly what you're saying because... No, it does isn't that I haven't got any decision on what I do. It's that the message comes into my silly head. Come on, Robert, one won't hurt. Right, yeah. And it's that side that I then have a choice as to whether I get to act on it or not. Mm. And in my using days, of course, I acted on it. it was, you know, It was telling me what I wanted to hear. One won't hurt. I used to take food to bed with me in the middle of the night in the hope of waking up in the middle of the night to have another meal. Mm. I've picked food out of, out of bins where I've thrown it away and I've regretted it and fished it out again. Mm. I've, I've done very stupid things. But I don't do them now. But the reason is not because I've you know, suddenly got great insights, because the thing that actually caused me so much damage for so long is that I'm too clever and too determined. And Mm -hmm. that's what kept me out until I was 45, 47. Because I believed that anything that could be done could be done with my intellect and with my determination. Mm -hmm. And when I found that that absolutely didn't work, Mm -hmm. then I was very worried because what else could I use? And that's when I discovered the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: Right. And you were about to talk about the three aspects of recovery. Yes,
1: the three aspects of what I consider recovery, what I really want in my life. The first is peace of mind in spite of unsolved problems. Mm. And we've all got problems, of course we have. But I want peace of mind anyways that I can, you know, get on with my life. Mm. The second is happy and mutually fulfilling relationships. I never say I'm married because that statement is two words short. I'm married so far. And that gives my wife Pat the opportunity to say, you think so? (laughs) Uh, And then, you know, I really have to be sensitive to her sensitivities. For example, she doesn't like my papers all over the glass table in the sitting room. She she just doesn't like that. It's one of her things. And they're not there. They're here in my files Hmm. in this room. So I'm sensitive to her in that way. And the third thing is I want spontaneity, creativity and enthusiasm spontaneity I want to do something yay let's do it let's do it now you know if it's sensible just because it's fun let's do it creativity my life is fundamentally based upon finding new ideas in the last uh, 10 years when I've been married to Pat I've written 7 novels I've written or created 7 books of photographs with 2 or 3 on each page and each one is 74 pages I've written a book of sonnets, one for every day of the year. I've written a book of haikus, one for every day of the year. I've created 40 animated cartoons. And Sol Gordon Sato, who's my friend who does all the animations, helped me with that. But I did all the text and the original stick drawings. I've done a huge amount. And now I'm into music. Mm. About in May last year, that was about 18 months ago, A friend suggested I should join a group called Books, Music and Lyrics. And I said, that's fine, fine, I could write the book or the the lyrics maybe. And then somebody else could do the music. And they said, well, come along next week. I said, well, I can't because my wife and I are in Tenerife next week. Well, come next year. I said, but I'm 81. I I don't know that I've got another year. (laughs) So anyway, I went to the University of Reading for a course there. And in the first week, I was taught the key of C major. Which I think I know. I've actually conducted La Boheme. I created the United Hospitals Operatic Society when I was 28. And I conducted three performances of La Boheme with Jeannie. And that's you know, not an easy opera to conduct. The mm. second act is all hell, although I actually prefer the third act. But a friend of mine on the course said, what have you ever composed? And I said, nothing. He said, well, anybody can compose. You just sit down to a keyboard and see what comes out of your fingers. I said, well, I've son and I've conducted, but I've never composed. He said, just do it. Hmm. And so I did. Wow. In 18 months, I've written a requiem, a, a two-act. A requiem. A, a, wow. I, I hope it's not going to be my requiem. Well, indeed. A song cycle, a two-act musical, a three-act opera, and you know, a set of pop songs. And now I'm writing a set of, of music songs for, for the sonnets that I wrote, I've chosen 14 sonnets and I'm writing the music for that, which I hope in due course to be able to orchestrate. Mm. I'm having the life of my dreams. Indeed, yeah. I've never known such happiness. You see, previously I had 120 staff and I believed they worked for me. What I've discovered is that I worked for them. Mm. You know, I was doing a huge amount of work for other people. Well, that's again part of my addictive nature. I'm a compulsive. Helper
0: yeah, I just do, explain what you mean by well, that.
1: I do too much <clears throat> for other people and not enough to protect myself hmm. I take on other problems other people's problems and make them into my own I really you know Really want to be able to help them, but in doing so I can go too far. I patronize them. I belittle them I infantilize them. I don't give them the opportunity To be themselves because hmm. I, I've got everything sorted out and for what them. do you get from that? What I get is the buzz of thinking that I'm in, in God's heaven. I, I book my place, hmm. and
0: so you think there'll be some re- reward, future reward. Well,
1: but there I, must the, be something immediate. The reward well. I get immediately is the sense that I'm I'm doing good work, right. worthy work. Well, I stood for Parliament back in 1974. Thank heavens I lost. I became I came third out of three candidates, <laughs> which I think is an excellent place to be because if I'd been a politician, I'd want to save the world. Hmm. I'd want to spend other people's money doing everything, 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 hmm. regardless of what happened to me. Well, you know, I may be a compulsive helper, but not nowadays. I'm hopefully in recovery from that because it's one of the 12-step programs that I work, is hmm. to make sure that I don't do too much for other people and I do look after myself. I was made bankrupt when I was age 73 which is not a good no seventy two. not a good time, because you haven't got any chance of doing anything else after that. But I hadn't seen that my accountant was systematically defrauding me. Wow In other words, I wasn't running the business properly. I took my eye off the ball because I was doing such wonderful work. I was mm. doing the counseling, I was the head of the counseling team. I trained thirty counsellors who are now working in other places, and I wish them well. I was doing the psychodramas, I was doing the EMDR, I was traveling to America, I've been 31 times, learning new ideas on how we can treat addiction in different ways. I've done a huge amount, but I didn't look after myself. Mm. Well, that's changed. I still, you know, work hard, I enjoy it, but I'm doing the life of my dreams, Mm. and my dream is to conduct, to do my music, Mm. and to do my writing, and to do my photography, to do the counseling work.
0: So let's come back to to addiction then. You define it as a neurotransmission disease. Can you explain yes. a bit more about that?
1: I believe, and this is very unpopular, that there are three causes of addiction. The first is genetic. My wife had a, my wife Meg, who died in two thousand and nine, had a terrible childhood, but she wasn't an addict of any kind. Mm. There are people like Gabo Mate, mm-hmm. who is very popular. Who says that all addiction is the consequence of a, abuse and abandonment in childhood? Well, I, I can remember that being said by John Bradshaw, you know, thirty to forty years ago. It's a very popular idea mm. because then people and it makes say, a lot of sense as
0: well, well doesn't it? Well, it, it does.
1: It, it, you know, it's treatment of the trauma, but it's also blaming somebody else. Mm. Whereas my name is Robert, and I am an addict. It doesn't blame anybody. Mm. It says that this is my problem. So I think the first cause is genetic. As I say, my wife had many problems and it, she didn't have the genetics, uh, she didn't inherit her father's primary addiction, she inherited her mother's compulsive helping. Mm. So she was the perfect wife. I only had to raise one eyebrow and she said, oh, what can I do, what can I do? Mm. But of course that wasn't good for her, but it also wasn't good for me. Because mm. it meant I could get away with all sorts of things, rather than take responsibility for myself. Hmm. So the genetics we've either got or we haven't. The second is the trauma is significant. It does wake up the need for mood alteration. Hmm. You know, I felt I've got to have something to do with this. You know, I was put into boarding school at the age of four. And then when my parents brought me back to England, they were missionaries in India, I was put into boarding school again. And then my parents went back to India for four years between when I was 10 and 14, and then between three years between when I was 15 and and 18. I hardly knew my parents. Mm. Well, I had an interesting childhood. I had the normal abuse and abandonment that one gets in in British private school. Mm. But, you know, we survived that. You know, I had, had a pretty awful time at school. But, you know, it's over. I think that's the most important thing I can say about my childhood. It's over. But you see, the need for mood alteration was there, and I'd already discovered sugar, so I hit that. Later on, when I was in the army, I discovered nicotine and alcohol. Then when I was a medical student, I discovered gambling, and so on. We discover what works for us Mm. in treating the trauma. And so the third feature of addiction is exposure. I did not set off with alcohol and nicotine because my family didn't have the money to buy things like that. Mm. But we had sugar. And so that's what I hit. And so I discovered things as I went on and became exposed to more things. And I think this is what is crucial, that we don't have one problem. I have neurotransmission disease, which can only be helped by finding a mood-altering substance or process that works for me. What I mean by neurotransmission disease, I think that's what actually happens. In the mood centers of my brain, there's something wrong in the way that one nerve cell talks to another. And therefore, if I put in six minutes of mood, only five minutes of mood come out. So I'm left with a minus one feeling. I have an inexplicable sense of inner emptiness. And so, logically, I go looking for plus ones.
0: And you think this is something we're born with?
1: I think it's something we're born with.
0: Exasperated by environmental factors. Yes. Upbringing. Yes. Potential trauma. That's
1: right. But well, that is secondary.
0: Brought to a head with exposure.
1: Yes. Absolutely I, right. I
0: have a genetic predisposition. Something has happened to me. Mm-hmm. And look, all this stuff is available. That's right. Yeah.
1: And so, what I need to do is to accept my responsibility my name is Robert, and I am an addict. That is being totally responsible. I'm not saying, oh, I was had such a difficult childhood. That's blaming my mm. parents or blaming the teachers or blaming other people. I, I don't want to blame anybody. I take responsibility for my own behavior. Yeah. But I'm not responsible for being an addict. That's part of me. I'm short-sighted as well. You know, I had to wear specs the whole of my life. The end result was I was not a very good rugby player, which is how they judge things in private school. Mm -hmm. they give me the ball and say, run, and I'd say, where. (laughs) So, you know, I I don't have any sense of shame over being short-sighted. It's just the way I am. Mm -hmm. And so when, in appropriate occasions, I can wear my specs, not on the rugby pitch, then I can see perfectly well. And nowadays, I have plastic bifocal lenses inside my eyes. So I'm never going to have to wear specs. I've had a treatment, and it works. There is no equivalent for addiction. The Russians try stereotactic surgery. They put one electrode in the side of the head, one in the top, and they put the current on, and where those two electrodes would have met in the center of the brain, they fry it. Wow. And you finish up with zombies. Mm. Well, that's not what I call treatment.
0: Mm.
1: Now, the crucial issue that I'm trying to get through is that I may have an addictive nature and have a genetic predisposition, but I can do a great deal for it. I could wear my specs, despite the fact that my short sight is genetically inherited. There wasn't nothing I could do. I can cope with it by finding ways that work. And what I found from my addiction was that the 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous, now applied to Obreed's Anonymous, Gambler's Anonymous, and all the rest of it, Anonymous. Um, there's an, the joke that the, the biggest fellowship of all is on and on Anonymous, <laughs> for people who just can't stop you know, working in a 12-step program. Yeah. Well, uh, I understand the joke because I've seen them. I remember Likewise, a, yeah. a chap I met in Alcoholics Anonymous said, I haven't had a drink for 20 years. And I thought to myself, why on earth not? Hmm. For heaven's sake, go out and get slaughtered. There's a a better life for you somewhere. So I don't mean that literally, to go out and get slaughtered, but I don't think there's any point in in recovery unless it means something, unless we're doing something that we really enjoy.
0: You're saying that he was in what's classically called the dry drunk state of not drinking but not living.
1: The dry drunk is even worse. (laughs) The dry drunk is angry. I don't drink. Hear me? I don't drink. What more do you want? And then when he does go back to drinking, the family say, oh, thank heaven, we understand you now. Mm. So we don't relapse at the time that we pick up the first drink. We relapse at the time we stop working the 12-step program. And so all the mood changes come in exactly as before. And then, bang, we pick up the drink and then we're drinking. So it's that space in between the first time that we stop working the 12 steps and when we pick up the first drink again. That's called the dry drunk. We should Um,
0: clarify that the 12-step program is a a classic AA concept, isn't it,
1: from way back when? The 12 steps were created about 80 years ago Mm. when Dr. Bob and Bill W., the two co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, met. Bill W. was a a New York stockbroker, and he'd heard from a friend who'd seen the psychologist Carl Jung, that the way to get well is to reach out to help somebody else. So when you take your mind off yourself, you get better. When A helps B, A gets better. Uh-huh. B may or may not, but A gets better. And so Bill W thought he'd try that. And he went to the local hospital and said, have you got any drunks here? And he said, yes, but we can't let you see them. Well, if you've got one at home, I might see. And the lady said, well, yes. And we've got a chap called Dr. Bob who's... A rectal surgeon on the staff of the hospital, and I could phone his wife and see if she would see you. And she did. And so Bill W. went round to the home, and Mary Smith opened the door and said, Yes, you can see Bob, but he's boiled as an owl. Hmm. Wonderful expression,
0: isn't it? Yeah.
1: Drunk out of his skull. And Bill spent the whole day with him, and the next day he went round again. And Mary Smith said, But he's still drunk. And Bill W said, but I'm not.
0: Hmm.
1: And it was that that formed the basis of Alcoholics Anonymous. Right. After one whole year, there were only ten members of AA. You know, it's that difficult. Hmm. And they were trying to detoxify people in their own homes. Somebody actually hanged himself in, in Bill Wilson's own home, which his wife Lois wasn't thrilled about, as you can imagine. And then Four years down the line, they wrote the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the guidebook. Mm -hmm. And he asked Rockefeller, who he knew from New York, if he could come and talk to him. And Rockefeller said, yes, I'll bring some friends, because it sounds as if you might have a good idea. And so Bill W. and a number of his friends presented to Rockefeller, at the end of which Rockefeller said, these ideas are wonderful. And therefore, I'm going to give you no money at all. Build help okay to give him the money for, to build a rehab mm. and what Rockefeller said was no, the ideas will be corrupted by money you need to you know, establish yourselves in your own way and not look for any outside help because that way it's going to work long term mm. and that's exactly what happened it's one of the traditions uh, to our traditions as well as, as 12 steps mm-hmm. that AA has no opinion on outside issues, and takes no income at any time yeah. from outside people. There was an interesting thing happened a few years ago in in London. There was a lady who was so grateful to AA for sobering up her husband, that when he died, she wanted to give AA a, a huge sum of money, or you know, billions. And they said, we can't do that against our traditions. Mm. And so the lady took them to court, or the, the solicitors did, and it went up to the high court, and AA said we can't accept this money, and they said but you, you could help enormous number of people, and they said no, it would kill AA, hmm. and the court found in favour of AA, hmm. so they actually turned down the money. Wow. we're totally dependent upon our own um, provision.
0: Peculiar that even went to court, but. I want to come back to the, the dry drunk idea anyway, because I think yeah. there are probably a lot of people walking around. They aren't. And, and firstly, actually, it, it, we're not just talking about alcohol, are we? Yeah. You've mentioned a few. Gambling, sugar, nicotine, prescription drugs, illegal drugs, legal mm-hmm. drugs, sex, work,
1: yes, compulsive all
0: helping. Of, that's just that. 10 rattled off. There are more. So when we're talking about addiction, we are talking very broadly about right all the, the potential. The, but the sex the, and
1: lab th- addicts have a desperate time. You know, I've had a chap say to me, Oh, I'd love to have that addiction. Mm-hmm. I say, Would you really? It has a very high suicide rate mm. because they destroy all their relationships and yeah. so they have a very lonely old age. Stringfellow, who ran the series of nightclubs, said he'd had 2,000 girls. Warren Beatty says he's had 2,000 girls. What is this? Mm-hmm. What's that verb, had? Mm. What does that mean? I wonder if they've ever had one close relationship yeah. in their entire lives. That's what I want. I don't want girlfriends on the side. You know, I just want to have my wife and to be happy with her. So the sex and love addicts have a wretched time. So when we look at any addiction, it's an addiction by definition, if it's progressive and destructive. If you can handle it indefinitely, then you may be silly. You may, you know, get drunk and drive a car and crash it and hurt somebody or hurt yourself. That's just being stupid. And, you know, a lot of the questionnaires that I I see from journalists, they're written by the journalists, not by people with any experience of addiction. Mm. And so you get questions such as, have you ever had a drink in the morning? Mm. Well, <laughs> priests have a drink in the morning when they're serving Holy Communion. Mm. Night shift workers have a, have a drink in the morning. Of course they do.
0: Yeah, the Christians you know, are quite so vague. It's a
1: bad the... question. And so when we're looking at, at addictive behaviour, the only people who can really help it are people who've got the insight from being it. Mm. And Harry Potter speaks parcel tongue, he can talk to serpents. I can't, but I can speak addict. Mm. I know how to talk so about it. So what
0: questions would you ask someone who's, who's concerned about an addictive behaviour? I would
1: say that the crucial issue is whether the first drink triggers the need for the next, mm. whether the first spin of the dice triggers the need for the next, whether the first spoonful of sugar triggers the need for the next. Mm. That is the crucial question. There are 12 characteristics. You know, We've always got it on our mind, either to give it up or to, to use it we're very comfortable just using on our own we use it as medicine we use it primarily for its mood altering effect we don't want to run out at any time we've got to have it Mm -hmm. all the time and so on there are it's the primary relationship questions like that yeah that are crucial for anybody who's got an addiction problem it's all on my website and people can look up the questions and judge for themselves
0: which i'll link to in the show notes yeah
1: thank you so, you know, the crucial issue is always, am I an addict? Now, that applies to about one in six of the population. Really? It does not apply to five-six. So when the government gives sensible advice to the population, they're talking to people who don't need to hear it. Mm. You know, that's not the issue. But look at it the other way around. If the government were to acknowledge that this has a genetic component and you really need to target the families who have a particular problem. I, for example, two of my grandparents died of alcoholism. My mother had an eating disorder. My children have, have issues. We're looking at my grandchildren. You know, I'm looking at the family because that's what we do in the Lefebvre family. We don't do cancer, heart disease, diabetes, and so on. We don't do that. We do addiction, and we're very good at it. So the Lafeva family needs to be targeted. But there are problems with that because you know people will say, "Well, you're certainly not looking at my family." and the the danger is that if it is shown to be addictive, then we'll get a prenatal blood testing. And when the woman said was told that, her unborn child has you know, genes for potential for addiction and say, well, I'd rather have a termination of pregnancy than bring an addict. Because people have an idea that addicts are heroin addicts shooting up in, in some murky loo somewhere. They don't see people like me. Hmm. You destroy my entire family, or hmm. except my niece, Simon. I'm not very worried about her. She doesn't have any addiction at all, <laughs> she's a lovely girl. <laughs> so, You know, addiction doesn't affect absolutely everybody in an addictive family, Mm. but the round numbers are that children of the same sex have a 60% chance. So the daughters of alcoholic mothers have a 60% chance of being alcoholic. 40% of the opposite sex, 80% if both your parents are alcoholic. But there's still 20% who don't get it.
0: And just to touch on that then, we've talked about the genetic component of it. But do you think a lot of that is learnt behaviour? They've observed, right, when is stressed, she does this, or this think, is just very normalised in my environment, therefore, I've, you know, what, what do you think it is?
1: I think that's secondary, because the same secondary observation two. is made by the children who did not have the genetic yes. predisposition. Yeah. It's the genetic predisposition that makes the difference. Right. We put over 5,000 inpatients through our rehab And we put them all through the questionnaires that I established. And what we found was that some people had particular addictive outlets. Others had others. But what they all had was a family history. Hmm. And I compared these people with the population that I was seeing in, in my general medical practice, where I saw everybody, anybody coming over the street. So that was our normal control. A lot of psychological studies use psychology students as their normal control. Well, I can promise you, psychology students are, are not that normal. <laughs> They've got a very high addiction rate because they want to help everybody else and they want yeah. to understand themselves and so on. So it's not the best normal population. Whereas in my medical practice, I did have a normal population, so we were able to, to compare people like the like of age group and sex and, and economic status and so on. Consequently, the important thing is that if addiction is genetically inherited, we do have to target the people who've got it. And that's what the government wants doesn't want to do. I'm not talking about you know, party political government. I'm talking about the Department of Health. It fundamentally believes that these problems are caused by society. And we have to change society if we're going to change the addicts. And what I'm saying is, OK, you can change society, but it's not going to help. You fundamentally need to target the people who are at greatest risk. We don't target everybody for diabetes or heart disease. We look for the people who've got particular markers which indicate that that person is at risk. Mm. And I'm, telling, I'm what I'm saying is exactly the same principle. Target the people who are most at risk, and that's about one in six of the population.
0: So that's it. That's the first half of my conversation with Dr. Robert Lefevre. And if you enjoyed that, stay tuned for the second half of that conversation, which we will roll out on Wednesday of next week uh, at around our usual time of lunchtime. So if you've enjoyed this and it's been beneficial to you, it is a subject that a lot of people are interested in actually, um, the controlling of alcohol, um, if not addiction itself. So if there is someone you can think of who'd benefit from listening to this, then please share. Uh, And while you're at it, if you have a chance, we'd greatly appreciate you jumping on and leaving us a review and a rating on iTunes and, of course, uh, subscribe to the podcast as well. Thanks very much for listening. And we'll be back next week. Interested in finding out what your health IQ is? Jump on our website, www.bodyshotperformance.com and click on Take the Test. It'll take you through to a short two to three minute test. And at the end of that, you'll get a scorecard and a free 39 page report based on our six signals, sleep, mental health, energy, body composition, digestion and fitness. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please think of someone who could really benefit from the content and hit that share button and send it across to them. And of course, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you very much for listening.